Welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast about closing the strategy execution gap and promoting outcome-driven cultures. I'm your host, Jenny Harold, VP of Product Evangelism at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. And inspired by the proven objectives and key results methodology, GTM Hub is the leading platform for strategy execution management for mission-driven organizations. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. On this episode of Dreams with Deadlines, we're taking on all things ESG. We start with the basics, defining the ESNG of it all. But our big picture focus is on how to foster a more sustainable future. The passion that drives my guest, Gunta Rottenfossa. As a social impact entrepreneur and ESG expert, Gunter is here to provide an inside look at the global landscape. Where are we going? And how are we doing with all those corporate pledges for a more sustainable future? A few of the things we talked about. Where ESG and CSR overlap in their mandates to develop better corporate citizens. The UN 17 Goals for Sustainable Development and how that's going. The challenges associated with creating reliable long-term metrics by which to measure individual company efforts to reach carbon neutrality. The difference between and examples of carbon offsetting and insetting. Innovative technologies Gunter is involved with and what's on his horizon. And finally, we wrap up with some lively quickfire questions that will leave you inspired to join Gunter's push to innovate and implement the environmental solutions we need. Let's jump in. So I'm really stoked today because I have Gunter Rottenfusser on the horn, and we're going to talk a lot about ESG because that is his jam. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Welcome to the show, Gunter. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm very excited to have this conversation today. Let's start with talking a bit about your history, what you do, and your connection with ESG, because I think that's a very important foundation to start with. Kind of build the credibility, as it were, for all the folks that are listening. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you look at how I got to where I am today, it seems a little bit like a nonlinear way, I would say. So I spent mm-hmm. a, a lot of years in academia focusing on pure math, chaos theory. And then when I came out of graduate school, I knew a lot about analytics and technical stuff, but I lacked the toolkit of how the real world works today. I wanted to make impact and making a difference in the world, but I knew I needed to learn more. So I joined BCG, the Boston Consulting Group, as a consultant and worked there for about five years in the consulting track across industries. As you know, the learning curve there is immensely steep. It is insane. They expect you to be, yeah, a subject matter expert, like day five, right, for sure. Cool. Yeah, so BCG, awesome. What else? Exactly. And after a couple of years, I thought, yeah, you really learned, you know, a lot of things, but not everything, obviously, but a lot of things. And I felt that I was ready to move on and look for opportunities to make a difference, like in the social sector, sustainability world. And I didn't expect it back then. It was in 2010. I joined BCG's own social impact team and was privileged to be number two of the permanent team back then. And was part of how the practice grew to become really, really powerful, make a huge difference in the world, addressing so many different topics with 
not only non-profit clients, but also public sector clients and corporate clients. So that was when I really learned a lot about how this whole world works and how to really change things, change paradigms and become a player there and become impactful there. And then last year, I left BCG and started my own projects. And now I'm involved in a few things addressing climate change. And hopefully, we will make an impact rather sooner than later with those. Yeah, we'll touch on those in a bit. I think it'll be really exciting to talk about some of the things that you're working on to the extent that you're able to share them, of course. So maybe we jump into just defining some terms for folks, right? Let's start with the easy one. Well, not easy. Now, what is ESG? What are those letters? Yeah, I think taking a step back, for me, ESG is kind of like there are three different answers to that question. Like the simple answer is it's a framework, E for environmental, S for social, and G for governance. And it is a framework developed mostly for corporates in order to have a language to talk about their what's called non-financial indicators and non-financial parameters. So how they interact with the world more broadly than just top line, bottom line. So what their, mm. their, their operating model, how the operating model impacts the rest of the world. So that's kind of like number one. Number two is a more frustrating answer, really, because ESG is similar to some other acronyms and terms in this realm that are used in very different ways. And they are not well-defined, as I, as a mathematician, would say. So if two people talk about them, oftentimes they don't mean the really same thing. So for me, there's a lack of clear definition. And then thirdly, and there I think it becomes interesting, I like to think about it as a potential tool to measure the external cost of your operations, to measure something and quantify something that has been for free until now, but now realize, people realize that these external costs exist and they impact the world. And this could be a first step to, to measure them. So it's closely to what I said in the first answer, but it's not the way a lot of people think about it. So that's why I like to think about ESG and depending on who you talk to in different ways. Yeah. So then let's talk about kind of the messy middle, if you will. We have been talking about corporate social responsibility. I think this is a challenging thing for people to think through. It's like, well, I know you probably want to think that ESG is the same as CSR or corporate social responsibility, but it's not. What is the difference? What's the net difference given your experience in describing the three different flavors, if you will, of ESG? And what does that mean when we're looping in historical frameworks or reference points like CSR? So again, CSR is also even less well-defined than ESG is because it's been used for essentially everything, like from we are thinking about that we could do something that is different than business to fully-fledged, hardcore social impacts and business tying together activities that are really, really changing operating models and how firms work in the world. So that said, traditionally, CSR was either something really, I would say, philanthropical, often you know, started by owners wanting to do something nice, giving back. But oftentimes there was random things like sponsoring like kids' sports club or 
thinking about nice things in the community that they operate in. All, I mean, I'm not criticizing that. That's all nice and good. And then next stage came in, CSR became something like risk mitigation, where they tried to you know, anticipate or respond to actual outside force or development, trying to improve their operating model or their operations in order to comply with either legal frameworks, compliance or expectations of consumers or other stakeholders. And then there is a third stage where it becomes interesting, where corporations think about how they can do what they do best, but think about the broader impact and other stakeholders than just their shareholders. And there it becomes really interesting. And there I think people start to lose the term CSR and go for something else. But that's a very interesting aspect. And you could call, I mean, BCG coined the term total societal impact to have a way to think about that, to become more holistic and go away from the responsibility aspect. But coming back to your question, how that differs from ESG, well, ESG, as I said before, is a framework to measure and to manage the impact that you have with CSR. But as long as you don't tie your business strategy and CSR 100% together, um, ESG measures much, much more than just the CSR because ESG is also about what your business does outside the CSR activities with your day-to-day -day business impact. And there we get back to the external costs that I mentioned before. Sorry, that was a lengthy answer to a short question. No, I think that's a fair point. So if we were to summarize it, it sounds like it would be fair to say that CSR preceded ESG if we were looking at it as a time series event, and that the real delta is moving from activity to real strategic inclusion when you're thinking about ESG, which would require measures that are valuable to the business outside of perhaps financial metrics, which is what we're talking about, right? I think folks have talked about this as the triple bottom line, so to speak, yeah, so the background for all of this, I think, is the UN outlined 17 things that they said we need to do. It was a lot. Let's talk about the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals from the UN, as the backdrop to the conversation. What are those things, and why do they matter to us now? That's a big question. So Sustainable Development Goals, as you say, there are 17 of those, and they are broken down into targets, and then you get in the triple-digit numbers. Essentially. They are what came after the Millennium Development Goals that ended in 2015. And they are a really good overview of what are the biggest challenges that exist out there on the whole planet for environment and people and what needs to change in order to address them. So you have topics like hunger, poverty, education, health but also economic development, climate, life on land and life underwater. So a lot of different topics in one framework that gives a really good overview of the challenges of today. And when you think about your impact as individual or as an organization, I think it's a helpful framework in order to think about what of these targets do I impact in a negative or a positive way? And how can I decrease my negative impact and 
increase my positive impact on any of those. And that's, if you do that really consequently, that will bring you to a natural way how to think about your ESG and your impact in the world. Yeah, because if we think about ESG as what we're supposed to achieve and we really take that to heart, we can recognize that this is a very integral part of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, right? What we're talking about here is how to foster a more sustainable future. And that agenda is very important because, as you said, it covers problems that are beyond the emissions. It is poverty, inequality, certainly climate, environmental degradation, justice for humankind. It is a very important multi-stakeholder, cross-sectional partnership conversation that we're having, not at the individual level, but at the systemic level. And that's what I think makes it so impactful and important and powerful so if we were to talk about ESG, and we'll just dive into that, and just what this means, why expend the energy to do good ESG practice? There's a lot of pledges that we're seeing made right now. I think everyone sees them. It's in a lot of big companies' marketing efforts. But we also know that profitability is higher on the agenda, and oftentimes anything to do with sustainable strategy might get pushed down. Does ESG matter to the bottom line? Do good ESG practices achieve higher profits and better long-term investments? What are your thoughts on that? So there is a simple answer and a more sophisticated one. The simple answer is it does and it will because there will be regulation, I think, that impacts your bottom line if you don't comply to certain aspects that are relevant in your ESG world or realm. So the more sophisticated way to look at it is that if you look at corporations who have started integrating environmental or social aspects in their business strategy and started to implement activities to improve things in that realm that are close to their core business, you can see that they're not only bottom line, but also their multipliers in the investment market are above average within their industry. So there's enough hard evidence that shows that organizations that do really good, and in, in particular in E and S in the ESG world, are more successful as a business. On the regulation front, we're both in the EU. The EU aims to be climate neutral by 2050. And something that I have learned, if we're talking about the automotive industry, you cannot sell a petrol vehicle after 2035. And so the transition of that industry to have to transform its business practices, its supply chain, and innovate, utilizing newer technologies so we can achieve these goals together, I think is definitely an accelerant. And I think that experts are saying some of the concerns that buyers have had, for example, and transitioning to an electric vehicle are going to be resolved very, very soon. To include price like petrol vehicles and electric vehicles reaching price parity by next year. So there's a lot of really exciting things happening. And certainly the businesses that can capitalize on that, I think, are going to win the day. I'm thinking about Hyundai, for example. Who would ever buy a Hyundai vehicle? But right now in the market, I think they're number two with Kia because they're making lots of investments in electric vehicle technology 
and transforming how they're designing their cars, how they're marketing their cars. It's really cool. So let's talk about some of the challenges and concerns, right? We're talking about non-financial data here. How can we make sure that we construct non-financial ESG data in a meaningful, comparable, reliable, and relevant way? Yeah, that's the big question. It depends really on the different indicators. So there are seemingly easy things like, okay, we measure greenhouse gases and we measure the reduction and then you have a delta and then that's something that's hard. But even something that seems obvious like this isn't because a lot of organizations don't even know how much CO2 they actually produce downstream, upstream, scope three. A lot of organizations don't understand by how much they really decrease it with measure A, B, C. So it's already difficult with this type of simple part of your ESG matrix. But the more optimistic answer is uh, you need to go through the indicators one by one and focus on the ones that are closest to your business. If you are a producing industry, like consumer or industrial goods, then obviously CO2 will be one of your top targets to address. And you need to focus on those. And there is momentum in the market and experts in the market to move towards more reliable indicators and more reliable ways to measure there. And if you are in different businesses that are not greenhouse gas emission driven, but work with other resources, then you need to think about the indicators that matter there most and go similar routes. But eventually, I think that there will be, again, a mix of different stakeholders engaged. The accounting firms develop frameworks, I think, that will be really relevant. And I think, again, sorry to sound like a socialist here, but I think regulation also will be necessary to ensure that there are no shortcuts and that the indicators are the right ones and that they are measured the right way. Knowing or noting that the regulations are being, to some degree, revamped, some of them are already in play. We certainly know this in the EU, how expensive might ESG strategy and these disclosures be for companies, especially for the SMEs, the small to medium-sized businesses or enterprises. Yeah, I think there will be some investments, but like with anything, there will be a scale curve making this more affordable and in particularly automated. So there will be a lot of AI involved in solutions that will come in the next two, three, four years. And I think that will be a huge opportunity for in particular SMEs who don't have to adapt to every single change of regulation. We see that right now in the EU, a lot of the regulations that are taking place are only relevant for, for bigger firms. So there will be a development in the next few years, and then you will have this fully fledged integrated in your, you know, Oracle or SAP or whatever standard reporting that you're using. And there you go. So I think the heavy lifting will be done in the next few years, and then it will be affordable for SMEs. Let's talk about impact for a moment. I think this is cool because I saw you wrote a piece called the impact measurement, understanding the social value in entrepreneurship which I think is why you yourself are a social impact entrepreneur now. What is impact measurement? Well, impact measurement or also impact management, as you could call it, because it's at the end of the day, the same thing is really thinking about 
every aspect of what you're doing and how you are achieving what you're trying to achieve. And there's a lot of pitfalls on the way there that you have to think through and that are non trivial to understand in particular if you come from like the business world of top line and bottom line because the beauty of top line bottom line business world you always have the same currency it's always about the euros or the dollars that that are below the last line on your spreadsheet and that's different in when you're talking about any of the sdgs or any of the esgs or any of the whatever acronym it's your favorite one impact factors what are some of the challenges surrounding understanding an organization's impact? Because it sounds pretty fuzzy. Yeah, it is fuzzy in that that is really difficult or it's really important to understand things like additionality. A lot of things that you are trying to change, take for instance, education as one of the examples. A lot of education measures that you take today will or will not make a difference 10 years down the road. But you actually don't know whether they do. And you also have a hard time of attributing any change that will be realized in 10 years to what you actually did today. There's this question of, did what you do really make the change? Or would have it come automatically? That's a big challenge, actually, to get today. And you even have that, again, with the climate change and CO2. We can talk about that a bit later when we dive in there. But you have that every single aspect that you have in, in, in social impact. And I already mentioned another one now. So one is additionality, but the other one is also timing. So what you do today changes the future, not tomorrow, but changes it or changes not in, in 10 years down the road. So uh, timing also is really difficult here. Um, so that's only two of the of the really big challenges there. So given that there are challenges, are there any solutions then that you have seen on how to do this well? How to capture impact measurement appropriately? So you try to get a lot of data. That's another changes, uh, challenge, data availability. You base your initiatives on scientific data. So you do pilots, you measure the outcome of those pilots and only follow on the successful ones. And then where necessary, you have to adjust your measuring standards. Coming back to the CO2 example, you just need to make sure that you only count things that are really additional to what's already in place. And you also only focus on things that are permanent and not only short-term solutions. So Things like that. So you need to be flexible in your framework and adjust to most recent scientific and political insights. So I think that's going to lead into the next question. How would you recommend going about developing an impact plan? So that gets me back to getting close to what you can do best. So if you think about it as a corporation, I would think about three things and usually they are tied together, but it's a good starting point to talk about these three things. It's number one, where do we have negative impact today? Like really think about your holistic footprint across all dimensions of ESG and think about where do we have a lousy footprint today? Like high emissions or sourcing from countries with 
low human rights standards, stuff like that. The second part is, where can we have really positive impact? Not reducing the negative one, but actually creating positive impact. Like economic development here, improving our workers' living conditions there, stuff like that. And then thirdly, what do we do as our core business that could be a lever to improve the world? What can we do in order to improve things that we really can do? Because that's what I've seen oftentimes is people were thinking, oh, this is an interesting challenge. I want to improve the world here. And then they either throw money at it or they try to invent something new that that's not their core strength. And what you should think about is what is it that you're really good at and do that. So as one of my favorite examples, I'm not working with them anymore, but still have ties to them. BCG, like they don't, they do donate money, but what they do really a lot of is pro bono projects as consultants. So they help as consultants for nonprofits. And that's what they do best, that they help organizations to become more effective, more efficient, so that those organizations can do much, much more than they could before. So that's leveraged impact. That's catalytic, catalytic impact that you can have. So that those are the things that you should focus on. And that naturally will also have positive impacts on your business itself. It will be the simple things are motivating for your employees. It will help you with like retention and recruiting and all that. But not only that, it will also give you expertise, give you insights, you know, maybe even create new markets, maybe create new products and tools. So it can be really, really also helpful with your business. So that's where I would start with the impact plan and then start thinking about how we can really manage either of those three things, our negative impact, our positive impact, and how we get there. You make it sound so easy, and we know it's not. It's not. It's still not. Okay, so let's hone in on the E part. We care about what we're doing to the environment. It's on the news all the time. And I think folks are starting to understand or hear a bit more about carbon offsetting, carbon insetting. And I think this touches on what you do today or partially. So we're going to start leaning into the direction there. Can you explain the difference between carbon offset and inset? Yeah, happily. Offsetting is really trying to buy out your way of the carbon that you're producing today and that you can't reduce. So you produce something and while doing so, you produce X tons of CO2 per year. And in order to become carbon neutral, you need to do something about it. So you go to someone who does something to reduce CO2 from, from the atmosphere and you pay them money in order to give them their credits or their, the, like the virtual currency of CO2 or CO2 equivalent tons. And then the balance equals out and you're carbon neutral just like that. So that's offsetting or compensating. And it's a necessary and good thing because we cannot reduce or inset all of the emissions that we are having today. Insetting really is that you create compensation or you create 
carbon removal technologies in your own supply chain. So you create a way to reduce and remove CO2 in the same amounts that you created within your supply chain. So you do something similar than the projects that you would buy it from in offsetting, but you do it yourself and integrate it in your supply chain. So that's the key difference and the way to go for many corporates in order to get out of the pay for carbon credits scheme. So the difference is you buy your way out or you build your way out. Oversimplified kind of explanation. That's the simplistic way to explain it. The advantage really of the insetting is that you have control not only over price, but also over quality. So you can be certain what's happening in terms of carbon removal versus buying it on the carbon market. You have to take the word for it either from the producers themselves or from third-party verification who actually profit from doing the verification because they get a share of the credits. So it's a somewhat difficult business model there. You're trying not to say that it seems shady. And I get it. Yeah, because it's not all shady. It has its flaws. But the good message is there is a lot of movement in the market right now to address, again, the challenges that I mentioned before, like additionality, mm. permanence, leakage, implementation. There's a lot of questions around what are the good projects versus the not so good ones. And there's really good momentum and, and, and strong players who try to consolidate the market of uh, voluntary carbon credits. So this is where it gets super fun. We get to talk about examples of these things. So let's start with the first one, like examples of what happens when you're buying your way out of this through carbon offsetting. What are the people who actually are doing the offsetting doing? There's lots of different ways for this. And it starts like with people selling credits for not cutting down trees. That's honestly something that happens today. And we can read about in the newspapers. And it's questionable, at, at, at least I would say, because sometimes it's, you know, coming back to additionality, you could argue that you really protect something that would have been cut down and you get money for preventing that. But oftentimes it's not even that. It's not even, it wasn't ever discussed that this tree would have been cut down to begin with. So that's the, what I would call lowest quality of carbon credit that you could get. And then of course you have the next level, which is actually planting trees where there hadn't been trees before, but then you make, you need to make sure that they actually remain there. And then once the tree grew to its maximum size, then there's no more additional CO2 that goes away from the atmosphere. And also the fully fledged CO2 removal happens over the next 100 years or 50 years or however long it takes the tree to grow. So you also have the question of speed. And then you have much more sophisticated ways like direct air capture, for instance, which is a technology to directly take CO2 out of air. And then there's different ways to actually store it, to, to stabilize it and store it either in liquids or in minerals. That's a very, very promising technology. The only downside is, in my perspective, that you need a lot of energy in order to take 
CO2 out of the air. So it's energy that is often provided with green energy, like wind or solar or thermal, but still you need that energy and could be used somewhere else. So it's a kind of like cannibalizing the energy market, if you want to put it like that. And then there's a lot of other different innovations and startups working on technologies. You can change agriculture in order to make the soil find much more CO2. And then there's also ocean-based solutions where you can grow plant, plants in the ocean, for instance, and then try to stabilize and sequester the carbon that comes out of that. So lots of carbon offsetting activity going on. Let's talk about the carbon insetting where I think you play a little bit more closely. Let's talk about that for a minute. What are the ventures that you're working on now? How is it helping businesses change and think about their business model and how they produce? You think carbon insetting is the way to go. Otherwise, you wouldn't invest your time in it, I think. So let's talk about that for a moment. What does your company do and how does it help? Yeah, so it is indeed the insetting angle that we are doubling down on. And the company that I'm working with is called Syncolabs. And what we do is we produce compounds like protein or ethanol or antioxidants that a lot of industries need for their day-to-day -day production, in particular consumer goods, could be food, could be personal hygiene, products like that. And we provide these compounds, but usually they come with a positive CO2 footprint. Ours come with a significant negative CO2 footprint. So we produce, for instance, a kilogram of protein, best quality, of course, suited for human consumption. And it's plant-based, so it's organic, vegan. You can use it in burgers or you know, other like protein shakes. But it comes with minus 22 kilograms of CO2. So if you replace the protein that you're using today in your ice cream or wherever in your manufacturing, you can include our protein and you decarbonize your whole supply chain because the minus 22 kilogram usually will compensate for anything that you're doing, including usually, we did the math for a burger, for instance. So including the bun, the cheese, the salad, the sauce, and the transportation, everything will be compensated if you use our protein. And a, sing a similar thing works, for instance, with if you take any fragrance that usually comes with 70% ethanol, if you use our ethanol, then you would have a carbon neutral product, including the essence that goes on top and the glass bottle and the packaging and the transportation. It's a really powerful way for you as a business to decarbonize your supply chain by changing one ingredient and not disrupting the whole supply chain. So that's what we offer as a service. And we are ramping up right now, but we are looking forward to helping a lot of businesses to comply with the pledges they already made or are making right now. I mean, that sounds really exciting, but let me ask you this, Gunta. Does it taste good? Have you tried a burger with your product in it and you thought, wow, this tastes okay? It, it took us a while in order to make it taste neutral, but yeah. And the thing is with the alternative protein market exploding in the last 
few sure. years. There's so much expertise in the food market right now to use essentially any plant protein and make it tasty, like whether it's pea or soy or sunflower seeds. You know, they take a lot of different protein products and use their magic in order to make it taste yummy. You wouldn't use our... So we have raw material for the industry. We don't recommend that you would drink our ethanol pure or eat our powder pure. No protein powder is really tasty, but um, you can do a lot of great things with it. Okay, cool. I just wanted to mention that actually there's one other angle that I'm working on. I'm involved also in, in another project where we create a tool that helps the consumer to understand and change their carbon footprint. That's really exciting because they can have an app and when they consume something, they can understand what the footprint is. They can make educated decisions on that information, but there will always be or almost always be a remaining, no matter what they decide for, a remaining CO2 footprint. And they can easily compensate that with just a click of a button. We start with food because surprisingly food systems are responsible for more than one third of man-made greenhouse gas emissions. So we help you, you go in a restaurant, the menu of the restaurant will pop up in our app. You can decide what you want and then it will tell you what the CO2 footprint is. And you, you can change your decision based on that if you want to, but you can also compensate easily. And then the fun part comes, you can share it with your friends, you can achieve goals, you can be competitive with others, and you can also get recommendations where to go, where it's particularly green and sustainable to eat. And we will expand the app to other consumer experiences like touristic experiences, traveling, hotel stays, and also uh, eventually we hope to cover the whole day-to-day -day experience as a consumer with this app and help you become a greener person and live a more sustainable life. It's called Compensier. Where can they, what regions is this available now in terms of being able to tell you on the menu, this is what you would be committing to in terms of your carbon footprint if you were to eat this meal? Is it regional? Is this global? Where are we at? No, we are starting in selected cities in Germany, but our growth plan will hopefully be quick and we will expand to other countries in Europe and then hopefully go global as soon as possible. But we are at the beginning and it takes some time. Okay, so I think we're going to go to quickfire questions. Although I feel like I know your answers for these. Maybe we can go ahead. Are you ready? Yeah. What is your dream with a deadline? It's really about making a difference on climate change, but doing so, including all sectors, the social sector, the public sector, but most importantly, the corporate sector, and helping businesses to fulfill their pledges in a profitable, but also social, humane, environmental friendly way. Cool. So you have multiple things running at the same time. What do you appreciate about the teams that you work with? I think it's kind of a boring answer I have to that because it's just how passionate those people are, how driven they are for the impact they want to have. And they have so much energy and they are so incredibly smart and creative to find solutions that no one found before. So I really enjoy just 
working with them and having that environment of people that I can relate to and that have common goals and common norms and expectations. I don't know if that's boring. I feel like that sounds right. That feels right. So as an entrepreneur meeting your businesses, I imagine that you encounter some interesting strategy execution challenges. Can you share a challenge that you've experienced? And how did you overcome it? I think it's really about pivoting at the right way, at the right point when you find yourself at a question that you can't solve and you're trying to find a way around it. And the answer always seems to be the same. Sometimes it's really important to just take a step or two or even three steps back and think of, is that the right challenge? Is that the right question to think about it? And if you can't get to the solution that you expected to get to, then maybe there isn't. And you need to start the whole thing from a different angle. That's what I did with the company share app that I told you about. I was actually going for the tourism angle first and trying to start there. But then we found out that I on my own couldn't do it the way I thought it could be done for various reasons. And then I joined forces with my co-founder and we included a lot of technological solutions and that leapfrogged us to the next level. So that really helped us solve the strategic challenge that I was facing in this example. Right. So you mentioned something about your team that really made you proud of them and appreciate them. And so you all have kind of a combined set of goals, ambitions. What advice would you give for folks who are just starting out and thinking about team-wide, company-wide goal setting? What advice would you give to help them get started? Think as much as you can about uh, a shared vision that people can relate to. and be very, very clear in how any of the goals that you set are tied to that vision. So really make them feel how they are part of the solution and how their work is important to what you're going to achieve as a whole. I think this is one of the key drivers for not only success and performance and effectiveness, but also happiness and satisfaction of your team. Then the last question, and we're going to let you go. What is top of mind for you these days? It's really about getting to the next level for the projects that I'm involved in and grow them to become really impactful because they are already existing. They're all in pilot phase, but we need to get to the next level in order to actually make a difference and scale them because that's what's really necessary in order to address all those huge challenges that we talked about before. It's scale, scale, scale. We need not only kilograms and tons and kilotons, but we need many, many megatons of CO2 taken out of the atmosphere. We want to be part of that. And, and for that, we need to grow, grow, grow. For sure. I wish you the best of luck in what you're trying to accomplish and the visions that you have about our future. And thank you for doing what you do. And thank you for being on the show, Gunther. It's been great having you. No, thank you for having me, Jenny. It was a pleasure. And I hope it was interesting to you and to some of our listeners. And 
whoever is interested to learn more or help or find out more, the contact details will be somewhere. And I look forward to hearing from you. All right. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.